The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in the presence of one truly unique artist. Chris Walters is a New Orleans-born pianist, vocalist, songwriter, composer, recording artist. This is the second interview that I've had the honor to do with Chris Walters. He has a new record out, the 2019 release, Whisper and Howl. It is a very unique album. Chris Walters, how are you, sir? I'm well. How are you doing, Paul? It's great to be with you. I'm doing well. Good to talk to you. Right back at you. (laughs) (laughs) Do you try to define your sound Do you put it into words what you do? Actually, I was just having a conversation with someone about this last night. I'm pretty well known, or people think of me as a jazz piano player, but that's not how I think of myself uh, or my compositions. I think, but when people think of what I do, they call it jazz. But when I think of jazz, I think of a myriad of music that, doesn't sound it's beautiful it doesn't sound anything like what i do though so i i I guess uh the jeff coffin the great saxophone player dubs my music post-surrealist pop so i like that uh but i don't i really don't know how to define my music except it's you know it's original songs it's not groundbreaking or or world changing world shattering necessarily but i and i do think it's influenced by jazz obviously uh there is some improvisation and there's a lot of swing in in quite a few of my tunes so that is i you know that's that's part of what defines jazz in some people's eyes but i consider myself a a songwriter and pianist and composer but i would I don't necessarily think of myself when I think of jazz. I think of Miles Davis, Bud Powell, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, John Coltrane, you know Charles Mingus. My music sounds nothing like that. So, there. Does that help explain what I'm what you were asking? <laughs> well, I think you bring up an interesting point in that people, most people, have this idea about jazz that it's just this one thing, and. Mm-hmm. Do you think most people really know what jazz is? No, I don't. I think it's a it's a wide range, and because we have to, I mean, this has been discussed by much more wise people than me. But I, because we have to find a niche for merchandise, for album sales, or or in order for people to even have a clue of of what they're going to go see or hear live. We put things, we pigeonhole things in a category, but the the obviously the category of jazz is so widespread, as are all categories really. But I mean, if you hear a rap album, you know it's rap. If you're asked, you know what what kind of music is this, and they say, well, it's rap, it's hip hop, you go, oh, okay, I kind of have a general idea. But with jazz, you know, you have anything from Ornette Coleman to Cecil Taylor. To Miles Davis, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, to Earl Clue, to Kenny G, to just a variety of different 
musical sounds that is all defined by the jazz category and it and it kind of is hard to decipher and difficult to navigate really what would you say has always been the purpose of the art you create um that's that's probably a deeper question than i have the brains to answer but i would say first and foremost I want to tell stories. I have a penchant for for storytelling and wanting to tell stories. And so my lyrics are very story-based and they often delve into the darker aspects of of humankind and society and and life, but hopefully with some wit and charm in there so it's not just dark twisted stuff but i think i think that's it i think of myself as a storyteller at the piano and as a composer even the instrumental tunes i think are stories i think of them as as journeys as as stories that are being told interesting and as i mentioned at the top the name of this recent album is whisper and howl yes what is the meaning behind the title uh, well, this album actually came out of n- nowhere, sort of. I, I released another album, which I got to get to you actually last October, which has, it's 12 songs, most of which are lyric based songs with me singing. It's called Boneyard Thieves. But before I released that, I had no intention of creating another album, but I started writing in the early summer of last year, just instrumental music. And I'm, I have had a love for what's dubbed again with categories as lounge exotica music, uh, the music of Les Baxter of the late fifties, music of Juan Garcia Esquivel from the sixties, space age pop. It's called, I love Raymond Scott orchestra stuff from the, uh, thirties and forties. And so I think this album, Whisper and Howl, came out of my love for that. That said, it's it really doesn't sound like that. I mean, I don't know that listeners would necessarily pinpoint my influences for writing this album, but that's the truth, is that that was kind of what, listening to that and having a love for that music kind of inspired the writing for this album whisper and howl and then uh, again we started recording in october i released boneyard thieves in october and then we were recording whisper and howl i wrote three tunes went in for a session cut those with zeb briskovich on bass and jordan pearlson on percussion and drums and it went really well but i was like okay well maybe i can release maybe get a couple tune more tunes together and release an ep or i can release these as singles but then things just kept snowballing and tunes kept coming up. There are two tunes from the, on the album whisper and howl that are reimaginings of tracks that I previously cut tattered Demalion, which is a, a ballad. I actually cut the piano track back in 2001, intending to release it on my cool blue swing album of that year. But I just couldn't find a place where I didn't think it fit the album. So I just held on to the piano tracks. It was a solo piano composition. 
And then uh, the song Aboriginal uh, on this album, Whisper and Howl, was originally recorded on my 1992 release, Strange Fruit, with a whole different mindset. So I, I got together in 2012 a, a, a flamenco arrangement of it, and I recorded Liam Christie on guitar and me on piano, but it wasn't complete, and I couldn't figure out how to complete it like I wanted for that album. So I held on to his and my tracks. Both of those tunes, Aboriginal and Tattered a Million, resurfaced for this album, Whisper and Howl. And I think uh, what happened with Tattered a Million was I was thinking, okay, well, I've got this piano track that I like. It's good. But then we were Brooke Sutton, Sutton and I, the engineer and co-producer of this, and I were discussing, well, how do we make this solo piano thing fit this album? And I decided to do a string arrangement for Tattered a Million, but in, instead of having the string section... It's really just for that for that track. We just I just had Alicia Anstrom on violin and Emily Nelson on cello. So I wrote the two parts not as an accompaniment to the piano, but more as a voice in itself. So if, as you listen to Tatter Demelia, you can hear this weaving of these two different voices: the piano and then the string voices doing different things instead of just having strings beautifully accompanying the piano it's it's got a life of its own so but that's that's kind of the evolution of this this album really you were mentioning some of the influences and i have to say there is something of esquivel in this recording all right i love hearing that (laughs) yeah Uh, he's one of my favorites i can't i can't get over his music yeah Man, he did some really cool stuff. He did, yeah. Who would you say are some of your biggest piano influences? Um, I would have to say George Gershwin is very influential as a composer and as a pianist to me, and not in not necessarily intentionally. I just I think I'm really drawn to the fact that his language. I personally would name only a number of composers whose language as they, uh, as they compose is so utterly them. And George Gershwin tops the list. I think Thelonious Monk was a composer whose language was just idiomatic to his own personal journey. Stravinsky, obviously, but I don't hear that in a lot of composers, but George Gershwin as a composer is so easily identifiable. I remember the story about Ravel coming to the States and George Gershwin wanting to uh, study composition with him. And Ravel said, why? Then I would make you a second rate Ravel instead of the first class Gershwin, you know? So there you go. Even Ravel was an admirer. You're based out of Nashville. Do you think that people maybe have the wrong idea about Nashville? And what I mean by that is, yes, there's tons and tons of country music coming out of Nashville, but there's all this other stuff coming out of there as well. That's very true. I don't know. I think it's changing. I think the mindset's changing. First of all, Nashville is is a much younger city than it was when I moved here in 1989. I was 27 at that time. There I go, giving away my age. But I was the youngest person I knew, and I'm not joking. I Most of the people I knew were over 40, and I was 27. Now it's all 
20 and early 30 something year olds, which is great. There's a vibrancy, but there's also kind of just a hip knowledge of what go- what's going on. The country music scene is, has changed, but there's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's thriving in the sense that it was in the seventies and eighties, but there are some great country artists here still, but, but the young vibrancy of the city is bringing hip people from all over the globe here and creating and witnessing a huge change in the city. That said too, there are so many great musicians here. That's as a musician, it's a blessing and a curse because there's not a week that goes by where I don't meet a musician who just knocks my socks off that I haven't even thought of or heard of or known about before. I, I learn about a new crazy great musician every week or more than one sometimes that's here now in Nashville. And I think that's a blessing, but also what happens in a city like this where it's all musicians is it's difficult to play live or find work live, find paying work live in a city because everybody's a musician and everybody's either working or they're working on their own stuff or they'll come out to hear you. There is a thriving musicians coming out to hear musicians in this town too. But it's like, you know, we all got our own stuff going on and I try to go out and support and listen to as many people as I can, but I'm out gigging just like every other guy, you know, so, and girl. So it's just a strange atmosphere to do live work in. There is live work, but it's strange. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) I I know what you mean. You want to be supportive of these other artists, but also, you know, you can't, if you went to everybody's show that you know, you would just never do, you would never be able to do anything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, on the note of gigs, I saw that you're going to be playing at the renowned Feinstein's 54 Below Club next month, August 13th, 2019 at Feinstein's, and you're going to be with yes. Mandy Barnett. Tell us That's about right. that show. Uh, Mandy is a amazing vocalist and just a hilarious personality. Uh, she's a good friend, and I've been working with her on and off for, gosh, maybe five years. I don't know exactly how long. But she has, she usually carries some of the best musicians around with her. Andy Reese of the Time Jumpers and uh, Gene Chrisman, who's one of the greatest drummers still around, still recording. He's, he's uh, with Dan Auerbach right now. But she tends to hire really really top-notch musicians so it's fun to work with her and then she does an amazing assortment of songs anything ranging from i don't know roy orbison to patsy cline to uh uh, oh gosh i'm not uh, to gene pitney to george gershwin songs it's an amazing thing so her thing with michael feinstein is going to be fun because obviously michael feinstein is kind of a champion of the uh, uh, great American songbook. And so we're kind of blending to these two worlds. Mandy's known quite widely as a Patsy Cline 
girl because she did the show always Patsy Klein and that was a huge hit for her. But she's really branched out away from doing a lot of Patsy Klein stuff, even though there are people who come to see her shows who that's what they want to hear. So she will she will do whatever people want to hear. But she's really branched out to do a bunch of other things. And I'm really excited about the 54 Below show. People can find out about that. It's on chriswaltersmusic.com, along with a lot of other stuff. You can click on tour, and everything you need to know about that is right there. On the note of the American Songbook, one of the tracks on Whisper and Howl, a very cool interpretation of Skylark. I promised. Oh, thank you. Everyone out there, they have not heard anything like this. So tell us about that track and what inspired it. Okay. Well, Zeb Breskovich, who I mentioned earlier, is a bass player I work with a lot. Uh, he will be playing with me tomorrow night at the Nashville Jazz Workshop, along with the rest of my band, Jordan Pearlson and uh, Alicia Anstrom and Emily Nelson. Anyway, Zeb had, had been working on uh, writing some things. We All of his friends have kind of told him, man, you got to get a Zeb Breskovich album together. So he's been writing things and recording a couple things. And he's like, man, I just don't have tunes. And I just, and I said, man, I've always wanted to, what if I were to like write an arrangement of a, a standard like Skylark? Cause I love Skylark for obvious reasons, you know? And he goes, yeah, that'd be cool. So I go, so I was thinking, and I think he was thinking it was going to be more of a orchestral arrangement in terms of more instruments than what I included. So what I did was I wrote a string quintet arrangement basically there's a quartet arrangement but there are a couple parts where uh there's some divisi strings in there so there's more than four parts happening at a time and my intention was just to have the strings which we hired uh seven string players and we stacked them three times so there's basically 21 strings on most of this album including skylark and i wrote it with the intention of being like this archaic 1930s early 40s string sound this real almost weepy sweet uh kind of archaic vintage sound both sonically but also in its feel and it's in the arrangement itself and i wanted him to play the melody and a solo on bass which is an odd thing but this was intended for an album for him and it, he might still release it on an album if he ever gets it happening but so we recorded it and I really liked it. But again, I was talking with the engineer, Brooke Sutton, and I was like, man, I love it. But that's like over four minutes of a lot of bass, man. You know, it's like a, I, I, I love it, but it's asking a lot of of uh, an audience on a piano player's album to not have anything but strings and a bass taking melody and solo. I, you know, I just don't think it fits. And he said, well, what if you put piano on it? But I didn't want to. I thought about putting some orchestra bells or kind of widening the the palette of the orchestral arrangement. But everything seemed like I was forcing it. So I wrote, and this goes back to actually uh, your question about what does Whisper and Howl mean. I wrote this poem, this short poem called Whisper and Howl, which opens, we whisper and howl amid the hurly-burly of the city. Whatever that means. I don't know what it is. But anyway, so so then I also gathered these little stories and poems from people, people's poems that I like 
I took excerpts from them. And I had Luella Mathis just on a session. She didn't have the music playing or anything. I just said, read these lines. So she read a bunch of these poems. Only some of the excerpts made it to the track. But they're poems uh, anywhere from Charles, Charles Simic's The Infinite to Ann Carson's story, One Plus One. She's just talking in a paragraph about swimming. And then there's a guy who I've actually been in contact with on Twitter, uh, Asuf Hanaka, who's a graphic novelist, uh, graphic artist, and graphic, you know, he creates graphic novels. He has one called The Realist, and there's a short story, a short graphic story in there called uh, The Writer. And I just, it's very simple, but I just loved the, um, there's a lot of depth in his simplicity. I don't know how else to put it. That's kind of a lame way to say that. But but as you read it, it's just a graphic. It's it's probably 14 panels or something. It's a real quick story. But I, I was just moved by the pacing of it and the words he chose, as well as his artwork. So I've contacted him as well about that. And and I included these Luella Mathis speaking uh, speaking these lines throughout Skylark and I think it works well it's it's odd and it's not as Skylark was necessarily intended but it really works for my purposes for this album it's certainly very interesting and I wanted to also ask you about the song amid the rabble what was the inspiration there? <laughs> that was actually originally going to be the title of the album aha uh-huh. I don't know I was this this happens this is Usually how I compose and write songs is I sit at the piano for hours at a time, days at a time and stuff. When I'm, when things are flowing, things just happen. And I actually had uh, that opening riff. I'll play a little bit of that for that. That. I had that opening riff written years ago and I just always liked it. It was goofy and fun and, and, uh, kind of showy, you know, people like it when your fingers are crossing like that on the keyboard. It was just something that was just fun to do. And then uh, I was, again, I was just in the moment and I started playing these phrases and they just kind of, kind of came out and it's, it started becoming kind of a stride piano thing. And then I, you know, I had all these different interweaving modulations into different keys, keeping the same thing. And it just, it exploded into this goofy track of, of stride nonsense where it's just rambling really fast, angular lines that have no purpose except that they're fun. And then I wrote this string section in the middle that's a slow string section inspired believe it or not by the um little rascals theme song even though it doesn't sound like the little rascals theme songs i don't know uh, what is it that that kind of thing so that so i wrote this and 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 i liked it so that was on the first sessions for whisper and howl in october and uh we recorded it with jordan zab and me on piano and i was just going to do the strings later 
and I, I got to listen to trail track and I was like, yeah, it's good. I mean, it's cool, but it's not doing what I want it to do. I, it's just, it's just, again, it's three and a half minutes of a piano player playing with a trio doing a bunch of angular lines. And it, I don't personally find that interesting anymore. I mean, maybe at a point in my life I did. You see, I do everything for myself, Paul. I'm such a selfish person. But anyway, no, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that this is just not working for me, but I, I like it. It's just, it's kind of sitting there. So again, I, I talked with Brooke and he said, um, he said, well, I have this friend, Michael Burbo. He's crazy, man. He just, and he has all these old LPs of sound effects, whale cries and radio shows and stuff. Let me just throw it to him. He loves doing this kind of stuff. Let me just throw him this track and see what he comes up with. So he did like 10 days later, we get this, this track laid on top of my other tracks with all these noises from old radio, like mystery thriller radio programs and, and whale cries and birds chirping and stuff. And we were laughing and Brooke's like, I don't know if this is going to work for you. And I go, no, wait a second. Let's just like sit. So we sat with those tracks for a day and came up with this, like, you know, the, where, where to place things within the track that it was saying something to us, which again is a very mercurial, ephemeral thing that i i can't even explain it's more of a feel thing where you're like okay let's try this yeah that'll work you know it was that and then we cut the strings and i did the calliope part with the strings so it was like some weird twisted uh you know fairgrounds or something and finally i mean i had called the tune amid the rabble when i wrote it but now with all these extra parts happening, I was, it's my favorite track on the album really, because every time I hear it, I'm laughing out loud. It just does something to my psyche that I love. I love that track. And it's not, it's not because of me. It's because of the way it ended up, I guess. You've done so many different things and you, you do so many different things in music from accompanying, performing, recording, composing, all the things that you do. Could you say that there is one thing that you are the most passionate about? Would it be possible to pick? Uh, I'm very, uh, not one thing, but I, I, maybe two things. I would say, first of all, I'm very passionate about the piano. I mean, people ask me all the time, do you do you play B3? Do you? I'm, uh, I have played B3 on a number of albums. I played it on my Boneyard Thieves album on the song uh, Waltzing with a Broom. But there are some great players here and everywhere. I mean, Pat, Pat Bianchi is like an amazing B3 player now. So is Larry Goldings. And I, I love the B3. I just have no passion for playing it. I don't have that, that thing. I, I, like, I like placing parts if someone needs a B3. And I do it. I, I, I do a passable b3 solo it's good you know but it's not what it's not how i hear music that's i hear the piano i'm very very i'm very close to the piano i can't say it in any way it's it's what it what the piano the relationship i have with the piano is a very dear warm resonant exciting exploratory 
thing that I can't describe, but I love the sound, the feel, the, the build, the, the technology, the, the, the resonating strings, the things you can do inside the piano lid, the whole thing. I just love everything about the piano. And that's where my heart in music lies. Another thing that I'm very passionate about is lyrics. I spend, I'm a great admirer of great lyricists such as Johnny Mercer. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm still learning. So I, I wouldn't compare myself as a lyric to a lyricist to anybody because, but I do feel I have something to say that's worth hearing. And I spend a lot of time on my lyrics. I will, a lot of times a lyric will, uh, will come to me out of the blue, just an idea. But as far as massaging and, and working through that lyric so it says what I have to say, I turn into an ogre. I'm up at 3.30 in the morning, awake, laying in bed, running a, a line over and over in my head, not getting sleep, just like there's a way to say this, but I don't, I don't have it yet. But I know there's a way to say this. And it always happens. It, it might be the next day. It might be three days later. It might be 10 days later. It might be three months later. The right words come to me exactly how I want to say what I want to say and how it fits within the structure of the, the music. It, it's been there all along. I just had to discover it, and I'm very passionate about that. How does it feel when the song finally all comes together, the words, the music, everything? It's, it's exciting, but then... Then I don't know how really well-trained vocalists go through the process, but when you're singing it and you're trying to find exactly how to sing it, that's a whole other process. And some, like usually the, the inception of the tune excites me more when I'm singing it than when I'm trying to learn it once I've finished it because, because the, at the inception, you're like, oh yeah, that's so cool, you know. And then once you're you spent these days or weeks or months writing the tune, and now you want to perform it or record it, and you want to get everything in its place exact, and you want your the melody to be sung with the right intention, the right inflection, the way the story needs to be told, and that's an ephemeral thing. It's like sometimes I'll nail it and sometimes I don't get it. And I'm like, why is this so frustrating? If I think if I was a more trained vocalist to spend as much time singing as I do at the piano, I would have a handle on that. But, you know, there's a line in uh, my song, Heavy Heart of Gold, that's, uh, let's see. It don't pay to have a heart of gold. A heart that may grow heavy once love's embers grow cold right here um, it mustn't weigh more than your fragile dreams can hold did to sing fragile the, the lyric fragile the right way to make it onomatopoetic to where the word itself the lyric itself is fragile it's a tough thing because 
either my voice will crack or I'll hit it too hard or I'm not, I'm pitchy. There's not, I don't nail the pitch. It's a weird thing. So I really, those things are really important to me. And yet, because I'm just singing because I love to sing, not because I'm a great singer, I struggle with that. I don't know, man. I think you have a great voice. Oh, thank you. Oh, I think you you, you have a very unique voice. I like I liked that that little sample you gave us. It was very nice. Mm, thank you. How important is the audience reaction? And I don't mean just when you're performing, but like the whole thing. You you come out with an album like this one, Whisper and Hell, and you send it out there into the world, out there to the Spotify, the YouTube, social media, the press, all of that. What's yeah. that like for you when it's it's out there and people are listening? I got to be honest, man. I am so thrilled at the response I've gotten to this album. You included. I was so it was so nice to hear from you about this and to be talking to you about this because again, I had no intention of creating this album really. I was coming out with Boneyard Thieves and this thing came out of the blue and we finished it way more quickly than other albums that I've recorded. And I love it. I, I love the, you know, the musicians I work with. I loved the process of working with Brooke through all these weird, you know, wayward things that we brought into it. And the, the result I'm just amazed by personally, but I was talking to Brooke before the release and I was like, man, I don't know how people are going to respond to this because it's crazy, man. It's, I don't know, even know what this album is. I mean, how do you, it's an album of instrumentals and I think of it as kind of exotica like Esquivel or Les Baxter, but it doesn't sound like a Les Baxter or Esquivel record. So it's just inspired by them. So I was, I was a little, I wasn't concerned because I, it's out of my hands, but I was, I was unaware that people would respond so quickly to this music and it really excites me. I'm thrilled about it. Are there any dreams of yours that you have not fulfilled? And that could be anything musical, non-musical. <laughs> it could be someone you always wanted to collaborate with, someone you always wanted to write with. What would that might what would that maybe be? Oh, that's a good question. Well, yeah, I do have dreams, but some of them are rather odd. I guess collaboration. Uh I don't know. Yeah, I think uh a couple artists might come to mind. Uh, Gillian Welsh is one. I just love her songwriting. Tom Waits is one of my favorite living songwriters. Paul Simon, who retired from performing, at least, as far as I know, uh, he'll be back. He's got to be back. He's too good. He's another one. I mean, those are guys, obviously, that anyone would love to collaborate with. So I, I don't know if... Uh, that's that's another thing. Another dream of mine. I'll, I'll tell you a dream of mine, which friends will laugh at this. Actually, everyone will laugh at this. But you know how, like, when if I were to, if someone becomes rich, one one thing of their one show of their wealth is to buy a yacht. Well, I was thinking if you know if I had billions of dollars, I wouldn't buy a yacht. I'd buy a submarine and create a venue out of it, <laughs> so that 
so that like the band would play and there'd be like windows looking out into the oceanic world and like it you know you get i don't know maybe 50 people to go on a three-hour underwater tour and play play the gig and maybe have comedy acts there and and they're looking at the fish and and uh wildlife sea life you know that's a that's a crazy but that's what i would do if i had billions of dollars see i should do it i should help humanity but <laughs> that that would probably be that's a, that's a dream of mine very interesting you were saying that on this album whisper in hell you were saying that amid the rabble would probably be your favorite song from the album but could you pick a song from this album that you think is most representative of the album would that be possible uh i would uh i would say amid the rabble is it most representative of this album yeah that's a pretty quick answer i haven't thought about that i really like um oh it's yeah that's like that's like asking me to choose which one of my kids I like best. You know, that's a terrible question, Paul. No, I'm just teasing you, man. Yeah, I would say "Amid the Rabble" is uh, is the one that rep is most representative of what I was trying to do. You know, it could be hard just because, and I would say this about a lot of your the things that you've recorded. Okay, like let's take the one that comes to my mind is the Cool Blue Swing album. Hmm. There's so much variety on one album. I mean, you have the title track, and then there's a Densaroo, which I thought was just an incredible song, but eclecticness seems to be your thing. It does, and I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or what it is or what that means about me, but but yeah, I I would agree with that. I I don't follow the norm in most ways i mean i i i hope that my music is accessible to some extent i mean i i i don't want to just play obtuseness and and i don't want it to be so personal that there's no overarching truth that other people can grasp or, or latch onto or enjoy. I mean, I, I really hope people can grasp the humor in my music, especially when I'm being somewhat body as in, uh, the cutting edge off cool blue swing or, uh, a boneyard thieves, natty, naughty boy, or, uh, lurid fairy tales. I tend to find humor in things that, often other people don't find humorous and that's that's not always good <laughs> but but one thing i'm proud of in my lyrics is at times because i go to the darker aspects sometimes of of society i do discuss or my lyrics kind of broach the lurid or the kind of what's the word cheeky but but almost in a lurid way, but I never, you know, I'm not against cussing or, or saying expletives in songs. It's just not something I'm drawn to as a lyricist. I've never, I've never felt that an expletive would say what I wanted to say. So I'm proud that I can get across a lurid idea without actually 
I probably shouldn't be proud of that, but I'm saying I, I touch on these aspects without actually using a word that's too easily a throwaway word that would be an easy expletive to describe what I'm describing. Wouldn't you say, though, that the biggest sin to being a songwriter, it, probably the biggest sin would be being boring. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's the, the biggest sin, I'd say. Yeah. To not have something to say. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. This album is definitely not boring. It's very, very interesting from start Thank to you. finish. Thank you so much. I want everyone out there to check out chriswaltersmusic.com chriswaltersmusic.com I always like to end my interviews I give the guest the stage I just let them take the microphone and say whatever they like what would you say to anyone who's tuned in oh that's a good question I would say uh, keep the faith do what you love create create on whatever level you can create create children create music create art Create love, just create. No, there's no pressure here, none whatsoever. Would you like to play a little something on the piano? Sure. What do you want to hear, Paul? I can pick anything? Yeah. Okay. I would have to say one of my favorites from you, Cool Blue Swing. You got it. There was a boy in the neighborhood with a swing set. I used to go there to play in the afternoon. Well, ain't it funny when you're six years old? Life's all fun and games. It's a paradise in your best friend's backyard. Tommy had a cold blue swing. Little Lila had laughing eyes, but she rarely smiled. Then I saw her play on that blue swing. Oh, the wind rushed by her face. Yeah, just a billowing. I never seen nothing as beautiful as Lila on a cold blue swing. You're dizzy when you're up, you're dizzy when you're down. Barely got momentum, then you're on the rebound. You better hold on tight. You're riding the swing of life. club on the Upper East Side called the Swing Set. 
They play red hot jazz after hours. Tommy works the saxophone. Me, I work a drink. The band kicks into secret love. Tommy's got a cold blue swing. Mm, you're dizzy when you're up. You're dizzy when you're down. Barely got momentum, then you're on the rebound. Boy, you better hold on tight. You're riding the swing. The swing of life. Thank you, man. Great. Great song. Great melody. Great lyrics. I love it. All right. I love hearing it. Thanks so much, Paul. (laughs) Well, ladies and gentlemen, Chris Walters. ChrisWaltersMusic.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Have a great night, man. All right. You too. Godspeed. Godspeed. Pop, pop, doodly, zing, bang, doodly, knock, cock, cheap, taboo. Bibbidi, pata, gotcha, gee, da, po, pop, better, like a teen. Oh, get a gig, madam, no, Oh, get a gig, 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 a gig,